Nashville earns yet another accolade. Apartments are being branded like hotels, and construction is finally being brought into the 21st century. All that and more on this week's episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. I'm your host, Tyler Cobble, and let's dive on in to Nashville's market. So the Nashville market has been hot for a number of years. I mean, this this last decade has been one of the largest, most massive upswings in our economic uh, environment that we've ever seen. And, uh, you know, the reports are still holding true uh, years later. Uh, this one from the Business Journal report, Nashville, a top 10 commercial real estate market, according to the National Association of Realtors. And uh, of course, yet another prediction that the office market will come roaring back. For years, Nashville has had one of the top office markets in the country in terms of uh, demand, right? So, I mean, we don't have the lar- largest office market. Nashville is a relatively small market compared to some of these other big, big metros. But we've actually had uh, the largest percentage of inventory under development year after year for the, since you know sixteen or seventeen, and we've had one of the lowest vacancy rates in the country because a lot of these a lot of these office users are moving here. Uh, I mean, you look at take the take the Amazon deal for instance. That was about a million square feet that they took uh, near downtown Nashville, and Nashville's absorption rate is about a million square feet a year. So, in one deal in the last five years, we took up an entire year's worth of absorption. So, pretty remarkable to see uh, what all is going on in the Nashville market. It looks like we're actually stuck behind a paywall here on the Business Journal. Uh, this article basically was saying that you know Nashville, among others, was ranked in the top ten. Um, it didn't say you know what the actual cities were ranked at, but it noted uh, it noted that you know of course Austin was in there, Raleigh, Seattle, Denver. I think Atlanta might have been. It was a pretty stout list, and uh, again, no surprise that Nashville is as hot as it is. This next one is from the Nashville Post, Nation's Property on River Under Contract. 10-acre site sits next to Silo Bend Development. So if you're not familiar with uh, with the Silo Bend Development, it's one of the larger urban developments um, in Nashville. It's on over 30 acres. Pretty uh, pretty massive mixed-use site uh, with... Some office, retail, multifamily, condos, I mean, you name it, they've pretty much got it. And it's, and it's only 10 minutes from downtown Nashville. I mean, you can see where this site sits right here. You can see that Nashville skyline right there in the background. So this site, uh, which again is about 10, 10 acres, uh, they don't have a price uh, for what it is listed or for what it ended up going under contract for, but they stayed in here that you know land in the nation's Commands upwards of a million to $1.5 million per acre. Obviously, it's going to vary widely uh, depending on where you're located in the nations. You know, since if you're not familiar with the nations uh, at all, it's it's basically a pocket in West Nashville. So unless you're driving into it, there's no reason that you would really be going through there. So there's a couple of major thoroughfares, namely 51st and Centennial Boulevard, that that you know, command the largest amount of traffic. Um, and other than that, there's not going to be, you know, I mean, there's some side commercial projects going on out there, but nothing nothing too crazy. Looks like uh, Byron Fort, Frank Thomason, and Jack Armstrong over at CBRE are handling, handling that sale. Um, let's see here. Nobody could be reached for comments. Sources confirmed it was under contract. 
no buyer named. Interesting. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty interesting site. I mean, 10 acres uh, on the river in the nations is a pretty phenomenal deal. So it'll be amazing to see what comes out of that. I would imagine it'll be probably relatively similar to uh, – it could be similar to Silo Bend being mixed use. I think that that's very popular in a neighborhood like that. But, you know, on 10 acres, you can also do a pretty sizable, uh, you know, garden-style apartment complex, which is, which is a very rare offering for this, uh, this location. You just don't typically have that much land to actually develop that large of a project on. So I know, you know, we were negotiating a deal on Dickerson Pike. We've got, I want to say it was just under 13 acres under contract with a multifamily developer. And it was one of the few sites uh, where they could actually come in and do this, this garden style development and still be relatively close to town. You know, once you go from garden style, which is basically surface parked walk-ups, right, three stories, you walk up, no elevator service, to a podium or parking deck style development, you increase your costs significantly. Uh, We're looking at a project right now uh, that we're developing, and we were considering doing podium construction for it so that we could maximize the site and also get covered protected parking. And... You know, we needed to sell the units for about $500 a square foot. That's in East Nashville. You know, it's attainable on Gallatin, probably, uh, but on Dickerson Pike, probably not. So that's, uh, you know, a long-winded way of, of saying, you know, 10 acres, you can build a pretty substantial piece of, uh, piece of real estate there. All right, now getting into Market Watch. This week's Market Watch is coming at you again from the southeast. No surprise, again, that the Southeast United States is incredibly hot. There's been a lot that's going on. And, you know, people have been moving to the Southeast U.S. for years now, uh, you know, to escape colder weather, to, you know, it's more of a tax haven. But with COVID, it's obviously accelerated. It has absolutely accelerated uh, that growth. And so this week's Market Watch is Atlanta or Hotlanta as some people like to call it. Let's pull that up. Again, we're in the Urban Land Institute's uh, Emerging Trends in Real Estate. Again, if you've never looked into this, highly recommend it. We'll probably be using it for just about every emerging market trend um, or every market watch that we'll be doing each week just because the information in here is there's so much data um, and so much time and effort put into it. And the Urban Land Institute does, does some phenomenal things for commercial real estate. So this is pretty pretty interesting. So Atlanta is, is considered part of the Affordable South, um, which, uh, let's see, re- the Burns Housing Survey reported a 94% year-over-year increase in net sales in Florida in August 2020. Charlotte, Raleigh, and Atlanta have also benefited from immigration. That's, that's wild. I mean, that is a massive uptick in a single year. Looks like Atlanta has benefited – uh, pretty greatly from the Hurricane Katrina uh, that happened in Louisiana in 2005. So people are still moving there from that. Now, looking at the overall real estate prospects, Atlanta's number 11. Look at that. I mean, it's just behind Boston, Long Island, of course, you know, Raleigh, Durham, Austin, Nashville, topping the list. But pretty amazing. I mean, it is out of all of the, you know, what Urban Land Institute considers, you know, hot markets, it is 11 out of 12. Looking at the home building prospects, it is number eight. I know we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, we're going to dive into an article that talks about the home building 
um, side of Atlanta and how the housing market is incredibly, incredibly tight, which, you know, we've heard again and again from, uh, from Austin. We heard that from Nashville. So no surprise there. So the Urban Land Institute has designated Atlanta as a magnet super sunbelt city. So if you're not familiar with what super sunbelts are, those are markets that are still affordable for businesses and residents, even while these powerhouse economies have attracted and will continue to attract a wide range of businesses. So all of them are among the top 10 fastest growing cities in the United States. And let's see, the other, other Sunbelt, Super Sunbelt cities include Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Phoenix, San Antonio, and Tampa, St. Petersburg. Um, so if you want to compare markets there. Let's see, local market perspectives, investor demand, very high, 3.98 out of 5, which uh, puts it at, you know, number 7 on the list, just behind Raleigh, Durham, Boston, and Charlotte. Local market perspective on development and redevelopment opportunities. It is also, inc- you know, very strong. Uh, 3.61 out of 5. So, again, b- just behind San Antonio. Seems like Atlanta and San Antonio are pretty neck and neck when it comes to uh, investor demand. Industrial is a hold market for Atlanta for the most part. Uh, looks like multifamily is also a pretty strong hold, but much less than an industrial Looks like they're at 53% compared to industrial 65%. That's inter- interesting. I wonder, I wonder if that's just because they're getting such great pricing right now that, you know, these groups are just willing to sell. Local market perspective on local and public and private investment is actually lower. It's about average, uh, but it's right there neck and neck with Nashville. So I don't think that's too big of a deal. It looks like Dallas, Fort Worth, Charlotte, and Austin are topping the list in terms of local, public, and private investment. Um, you know, working with these cities can be difficult. I, I wonder if it has anything to do with that. Availability of debt and equity capital, Atlanta's top ten. I mean, it's, again, no surprise. It's in a, it's in a very strong state. Atlanta's a very strong city. And uh, it's, it's really reached that critical mass where, you know, uh, debt and equity – have have faith in what's going on in that market. All right, let's move on to this other article from Fool. Why consider Atlanta for real estate investing? Let's see here. Some of the factors that make Atlanta such a great place for real estate investors, the low price of entry, consistent and steady population growth, and a healthy job market that includes many financial and tech-based companies and startups. You know, on top of that, Atlanta has a number of colleges and universities. So it's it's just an incredibly diverse city when it comes to, you know, wealth, education. It's got just about everything you could ever want out of a out of a strong southern city. Let's see, going all the way back to 1837. This is interesting. It gives a little bit of the history of Atlanta. The the fast growing city, staying true to its roots, is a transportation hub. Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International Airport is the world's busiest. I did not know that until we read this article. I didn't realize that their international airport was the world's busiest international airport. It's pretty remarkable. It's also the third largest concentration of Fortune 500 companies. Pretty interesting. Let's see. State of the market. The biggest takeaway regarding the Atlanta real estate market is there's practically no supply of single-family homes available. You know, no surprise. Just like Nashville. Just like every city in the South. 
Everybody's leaving the north, coming down here where we've got good weather. Trends worth noting. Rent prices are increasing. Rent, I mean, obviously, with high demand comes higher higher uh, rents. Um, and also construction costs are higher. I mean, Atlanta is, is by no means immune to to this this pricing uptick. I mean, it's it's been going up pretty significantly for the last three or four years, and I, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Housing supply is low. I read somewhere that they had, their housing supply was like right around 16 days average for a house to sell um, compared to 28 days last year. So, you know, again, you, we were talking last week about uh, Austin and that being a really tough market to buy a house in. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, every two weeks, the house, you know, you've got, you know, less than two weeks and the houses are gone. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy to watch. Um, you know, I, I think it gets later into this a little more into it's more into this later in the article, but, uh, talking about how everybody's just buying houses, they're waiving contingencies, they're paying in all cash. And it looks like the median home price is of course, skyrocketing. Look at that. Unemployment. Median price, 278 K is up 14.4% year over year. That's wild. That's a significant jump. Let's see, rent rent price, $1,602 on average is up 5.7% year over year. Housing supply is down to one and a half months. So that's good. I mean, that's actually, that's way healthier than Austin's. You know, Austin's was 0.4 months, which is less than two weeks. So... You know, all of those combinations or all those factors in combination make make Atlanta a pretty good market to look at. Let's see what we got here. There's another article from the Nashville or from the Business Journal, not the Nashville Business Journal, but the Business Journal. Atlanta's real estate market booms in the midst of a global pandemic. I thought this article was pretty interesting because it talks about how despite the pandemic, despite all of this this global panic, you know. Atlanta is still selling houses left and right, and it actually started booming even more than before. And they're attributing that to a scarce supply of houses, prices rising, and historically low interest rates falling. So it's a good time to sell. People started taking advantage of that. You know, people started buying. Uh, You know, with these interest rates falling as low as they are, it's incredibly affordable to buy these homes. I mean, you know, it's it's tough to really appreciate how big of a difference a quarter of a point can make, but it really can open up a pretty significant amount of your buyer pool. So when interest rates get as low as they are today, it really allows just about anybody to come in. You know, people that were interested in buying at 200 can now buy at 250. And you think about what, what kind of doors that really opens up for them uh, in terms of the buying market. Yeah, it's just a good time to buy. I mean, you know, you think about, I mean, one, of course, you know, Georgia still has a state income tax, right? It's it's not like Nashville, or I'm sorry, it's not like Tennessee or Texas where there just isn't one. But it's significantly lower than the states where most of these people are moving from. If I remember correctly, I think it's around 7 or 8%, but I'd have to go back and double check. Um, potential long-term impact, consequent rise. Home prices boosted wealth accumulation for homeowners, which, you know, is always a good thing to see, right? I mean, it, uh, 
it, it's tough sometimes to see housing prices rise the way that they have. But also, if you own a home, you benefit greatly from that. It's, it ends up being a pretty good investment for you. So that's all that we have for Atlanta. If you're interested in that market, I highly recommend getting in, in there and taking a look. I've been, um, I've got a number of friends that are actually, you know, they own development companies or investment companies in the Atlanta area, and they have been doing really, really well. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I'm starting to learn more about Atlanta. Of course, being from Nashville, you grow up going on trips to Atlanta uh, and kind of seeing you know, what's going on down there. I've got family that lives there. And it's been fascinating to watch just over the last 10 or 15 years. I can't imagine what it's been like to watch it over the last 30. I mean, it, that city has changed quite a bit. Anyway, moving on to the future of commercial real estate. So these are the articles that we talk about, trends that you might want to keep an eye on because they could have a pretty significant impact in the world of commercial real estate. This article coming at us from the Wall Street Journal, Google to invest $7 billion in bet on post-pandemic office. I don't think that we're going to be, we're going to stop talking about office and how much that has changed for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I guess we'll be talking about this just about every week on the show because it's so relevant. I mean, this is a completely opposite take of what most tech companies have been saying about office space, right? Most of these office uh, most of these office, you know, or I'm sorry, most of these tech companies have actually been saying, you know, hey, look, we're going to let you, uh, you know, stay home and work from home. You don't have to come into the office anymore. So we're not going to lease as much office. You look at Salesforce, you know, they they got rid of uh, and, you know, I think they had signed up, what was it, 325,000 square foot lease that they backed out of or they had a letter of intent that they backed out of. You know, that's pretty significant. And then you got Guys like Google saying tech giant says coming together is core to its culture and announcing U.S. investment. I mean, the the culture aspect of office space is what I've been harping on since this, this pandemic first hit. You know, it's it's phenomenal to see that in a worst case scenario, we have options, right? I mean, you know. Feel bad for kids on snow days because now they'll just say, "Oh, we'll just do Zoom school." Uh, but you know, you think about what Zoom, like the doors that Zoom opens up. Now you can work remotely. So if anything ever happens, if you do get sick, uh, if you do want to go travel, if you do have a kids' baseball game to go to, or whatever, you're you know, uh, you get to you have that opportunity now instead of being locked into an office. But that doesn't mean get rid of office space altogether because the, the synergy that you get from having your team working together in one location is pretty unparalleled. I mean, at, at my companies, we have, I mean, everybody is, is, is more than capable of working from home. Um, and we have unlimited vacation. That's probably a very, you know, millennial, you know, every millennial company probably has something like that because I genuinely believe in it. But just about every day, almost everybody and every company is in the office, at least for a bit. And what that provides uh, the team is unparalleled. You can't get that from a Zoom call. You can't get it from a phone call. You think about how much you get to know people just from their body language and getting to be around them and hanging out in the office, not to mention the fact that you know, if, if I need anything, I walk down the hall and I, I talk to Julian. Hey, Julian, can you make, 
you know, make some thumbnails for me? Or, you know, how's the video editing come along? I can walk down and check in on, on my brokers and see how their cold calls are going. It, it, it's, it just, you know, there's so much that comes from being in an office together. And, you know, like today I took, you know, part of the team out for lunch to catch up on some development stuff that we've got going on. You know, it's, it was just very easy for me to say, hey, guys, you know, let's, let's go grab lunch and catch up. You know, you get those kinds of opportunities that help build team culture um, and build relationships, right? And I think as a company, what's really going to differentiate you is the relationship aspect now. Because most of these companies will say, oh, yeah, you can work, you can work from home. But if everybody's working from home and nobody's building any relationships, you're really turning labor – uh, into a commodity, right? And so what's going to differentiate your company over the next company? I mean, now you get into a dollars, you know, a bidding war of like, okay, well, they offered me, you know, a dollar more an hour, I'm going to go work for them. Whereas, you know, if you can build that relationship with your team, it's, it's not always just about the money or the, the benefits or anything like that, you get a lot out of it. And so, you know, it, this, this article really dives into it. Um, and saying that that Google recognizes that. So they're pouring a billion dollars uh, into its home state of California, which is surprising to me. I, I can't believe that uh, people are still investing in California. But it looks like they would hire at least 10,000 new full-time staff over the course of the year in anticipation of a post-pandemic recovery in the U.S. Again, that's not unexpected. That's what everybody's saying. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in Nashville right now and you go down to, to Broadway, it looks like the pandemic uh, – never happened. I mean, it's, it's absolutely packed. The bars are open. Everybody, you know, live music is happening. Um, everybody's out having a good time. Let's see. Like other big tech companies, Google has flourished over the past year, benefiting from an accelerated shift in online ad spending. I guess that's, that, that's pretty well correlated with online shopping, right? If, if all of a sudden all of your consumers are shopping online, they're not going in stores, they're not driving as much, why would you do radio ads? Why would you do billboard ads? You're going to start spending all your money online, and guess who's mostly going to benefit from that? It's going to be Google. It says here that their U.S. investment planned for 2021 is lower than pre-pandemic levels, though. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think that it says how much lower it is. It just says in 18 and 19 it invested an annual average of $11 billion. So I'd be interested to see kind of what that is now. It looks like it's opening up three new office sites, one in Minnesota, one in Texas, and one in North Carolina. Look at that, two in the southeast United States, or south. I guess Texas is more southern. company said it would add thousands of roles at existing sites in Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and New York, extending a years-long push to broaden its footprint beyond Silicon Valley. We've been talking about that, too. I mean, look at look at Chattanooga and what's happening there. You know, you've got all these tech companies that are opening up their back offices in a tertiary market. And guess how much more affordable that is than, you know, opening up in a, in a San Francisco or Silicon Valley. Pretty, uh, pretty remarkable to see. Let's see. What does Mr. Pichai say? Google has more than doubled its number of data centers in the U.S. since 2018. Think about that. They are going all in on the volume of digital information generated by individuals and businesses daily for the cloud. I mean, that's not surprising. I guess the cloud really has accelerated. I don't even know when the cloud came about, but it, had, it hasn't been that long. Um, 
But look at this. Last year, it began breaking out revenue for its cloud unit. Reporting sales rose 46% to $13.08 billion from 2019. Expenses rose over the same period by 51% to $5 billion. So, you know, the profits are increasing significantly. Your expenses are increasing significantly. But, you know, it's largely because they doubled their data centers. Right. I mean, you think about how much of a f- upfront capital expenditure that is. Now, I don't know the, the logistics of data centers, and I would imagine they're going to have to replace that, that hardware every you know, two to three years just based on how quickly uh, that's becoming obsolete. But, I mean, if they continue that kind of growth, they'll do just fine. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Okay, moving on. This is a, uh, from BizNow, nation's largest multifamily owner branding buildings to create hotel-type loyalty. I love this one because I'm all about branding, right? And I've always thought that branding yourself the right way can really differentiate you from everyone else. It doesn't matter how you brand yourself or what you're doing, just be different. So this is, uh, so Mid-Atlantic Apartment Communities uh, launched a program to brand all of its property last year. MAA will attach its name prominently to its 300 apartment communities over five years. So we were, you know, I was talking about this with Andy before, uh, before we went live. You know, there are apartment communities around Nashville that are branded, uh, that have, you know, you, you follow like Broadstone. Well, there's a Broadstone, uh, you know, I think Germantown, and then there's or a, a Broadstone Eighth or a Broad, yeah. I mean, there, there's multiple different ones, and there's also Novel, right? There's you know Novel, which is by Crescent. There are a few different novel this, uh, you know, they're branding it, which makes sense. So they, they're thinking that one renters within a market, you know, if they want to move or switch, they want to stick with the Crescent brand, or they want to stick with the MAA brand and move to a, a different location, which of course will help these apartment communities keep their occupancy rates higher, their acquisition costs much lower. So it looks like uh, they're betting that the level of service it provides will help build a strong brand association that attracts renters. And I, I fully agree with that. I think that that makes all the sense in the world. It's not, it doesn't take a whole lot to create a strong brand that people will connect with. It just takes a little bit of effort and actually creating it, right? Let's see. MAA acquired Post Properties, um, which had been branding communities across the southern U.S. for years. Um, they acquired them in 2016. Looks like MAA's acquisition of Post helped it amass more than 100,000 apartments, mainly in the southeast, southwest, and mid-Atlantic. That was a good move. That was a really good move. Owns around 15,000 units more than Morgan Properties, which rose to second place with a $1.75 billion portfolio acquisition in February. Pretty interesting to see. I mean, I think uh, I think it's a good move. It'll be interesting to watch how many other apartment developers and investment groups follow suit. It only makes sense, right? I mean, how again, how are you going to di- differentiate yourself? The, the multifamily market is constantly adapting, trying to figure out what's the next trend, what's going to attract you know, the, the, the apartment users. And for a while it was, you know, amenities, right? It was how crazy can we make our amenities? And then I think it got to a point where it was like, okay, there are only certain types of amenities that these tenants will actually appreciate, right? 
I mean, there were some things uh, like there, of course, being in Nashville, there was an apartment complex here that had a songwriting room. Well, you'd think that that's cool, but nobody really wants to go out into a public area and then write music. So, of course, nobody ended up ever using the songwriting room. So they had to, you know, shift that um, and what they were doing. But, you know, there's a lot of really cool things that have come out of it. Dog washing stations, dog parks. I mean, that's brilliant. Of course, you've got to attract millennials with dogs. I think that, um, you know, continuing to do the same in other ways, how do you differentiate yourself to find that customer uh, is going to be pretty critical. This next article is from the Business Journal as well. Cornered market. Convenience chains enter growth mode as operators emerge from the pandemic with innovative layouts, menus, and branding. You know, everybody really took their time during the pandemic to make some changes uh, that they'd been probably wanting to do for quite some time. You know, when you're operating a big retail entity, it's very tough to go through a rebranding because you have so much traffic come through your stores. You're disrupting a lot. You're going to impact your sales. So, you know, taking a taking the opportunity of everybody staying at home and ordering online, it's a good good time to go through and do all of this rebranding, make all of those updates. You know, I went down to, um, gosh, what was it, Rebar, uh, which is a bar here in Nashville, and hadn't been there in, you know, well over a year. And you walk in, and, and they, they did a ton of updates on that bar, and everybody was just blown away by how it looked. But it makes sense that, you know, of course, they took the time during the pandemic to go ahead and make all of those changes. They added TVs. They redid the floors. They redid the bathroom. I mean, it was you know, great to see. Um, you know, because otherwise, again, what are you going to do? Shut down. If, you're, if you want to redo the bathrooms at a bar, what are you going to do? Shut down? I mean, people probably aren't going to start using porta johns and stuff like that. It's just it's not convenient. They're going to go to other bars. So let's see here. Convenience store chains already were well positioned to thrive in a pandemic. I mean, of course, because they are naturally a purchase that you're going to still, you know, uh, s- still do. Um, offering a mix of consumer staples in easy-to-access locations that enabled households to avoid more congested grocery and big-box stores. It makes sense. High-margin products, low overhead operations, eating into traditional grocery and big-box channels, and they're just more convenient. So... That's, uh, that's pretty good to see um, how, how that's starting to impact. You know, for a while, it seemed like gas stations just became a, like, you know, we're, we're just going to stop and get gas, and, you know, everything else inside is kind of ancillary to, to what's going on outside. And, you know, then there was a brand in Nashville called Twice Daily that really came in and started changing that. I mean, they built this whole brand around the convenience store. You know, it's they call it twice daily because they want you to stop in twice daily. You can stop in, get your breakfast, grab, you know, on your way to work, grab gas on your way home, and uh, it'd be a convenient, good experience. It was nice. It's nice and clean. All of their stores are beautiful, and you know, for Nashville, it's not really something that you would expect to be saying of a of a convenience store. So that's uh, that's it for the future of commercial real estate. So so. Stay tuned on those trends. I mean, those are pretty, uh, you know, those have the, the ability to really change what is going on in the market. You know, from Google investing $7 billion in office space to multifamily apartments starting to brand themselves to convenience store chains actually, you know, taking their, their service and their offering more seriously. It's, it's great to see everything that's going on. So 
Let's do a deep dive into private equity deals. Here's one from Business Now. Startup that turns restaurants and hotels into flexible workspaces raises $2.5 million. A D.C.-based startup that turns underutilized restaurant and hotel space has raised its seed funding round. Now, think about this. Uh, there are plenty of times where a hotel will have empty rooms, right? That's why they use services like Trivago and Kayak.com and whatever to try and book those rooms, and they'll give them deals because it helps just get them full. Restaurants, right? Now, if you're a dinner-only spot, say you're a dinner-only restaurant, you are paying rent as if you were a 24-hour-a-day restaurant, but you're really only monetizing it for four to six hours, maybe eight hours, right? Uh, you know, if you're an all-day restaurant, then that's a little bit different. But so think about that. If, you're, if you, all you do is serve dinner, you've got a kitchen that you're paying for all day that doesn't do anything for you except for cost you, right? So a lot of these restaurants have actually started renting out. They can be kind of a ghost kitchen renting out during the day or during off hours where they're, you know, not normally typically operating and renting them out to other uh, types of uses. Now, usually these uses won't be opening up for business within the space, but they'll be operating as a ghost kitchen where, you know, it's, uh, let's say you've got a dinner concept that, that actually leases the restaurant space. And then somebody will come in in the morning and do, I don't know, ta breakfast tacos and burritos for delivery only, right? So it's, it's your typical Uber Eats, uh, Postmates kind of, kind of business. So let's see. Uh, it's a company called WorkChew, um, and they're planning to expand across the country. Let's see. Founded in, in late 2018, WorkChew has locations in – that's an interesting name, WorkChew – has locations in D.C., Philadelphia, and Atlanta – has plans to expand this year to New York, Atlanta, Miami, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, and Denver. Come on, don't leave Nashville off the list. Work you. Give us a call. Happy to talk to you. Looks like they uh, partner with restaurants and hotels to give them an extra source of revenue by turning underused spaces into on-demand workspaces for remote workers. It's pretty interesting. The days and hours when the workspaces are open vary by location. For restaurants, it is typically during the workday when they are less busy, and they offer deals such as 10% off or bottomless coffee. Okay, so that's cool. This is a little take, uh, a different take on monetizing the downtime for restaurants. So instead of necessarily uh, you know, putting a completely different restaurant concept in here, they're turning an already active and open restaurant into a co-working space where you can go and hang out and work and get incentives such as free coffee all day, uh, which, hey, just makes sense. We've got a place here in Nashville called Pinewood Social which is, I mean, you're going to be there. You stay there all day. It's, I mean, it's basically a co-working space at a restaurant you know, with a coffee bar. And so you can go in the morning, get your coffee, hang out in one area, you know, sit at the bar for lunch and work from the bar. Then, you know, you can go grab a table, work there from dinner. I mean, if there's any number of things that you could do, it's just really cool. It makes it kind of this dynamic environment. I love seeing, I love seeing more and more of those spaces. I think, you know, this pandemic has really forced more operators to get intentional and creative with what they're building, what they're doing. So the pandemic has opened up doors for people to really understand the value of the product in a very immediate sense where it automatically clicks. So good for them. 
Previously, their user base was mostly individual workers looking for remote solutions. Uh, but now it's shifted to a business-to-business -business model where the majority of the customers are companies buying the membership as a workplace offering for their employees. So we talked about this a few weeks ago where you're kind of, you know, a lot of companies are actually decentralizing their office space. So instead of having one office in downtown Nashville, they'll have one in East Nashville, one in Cool Springs, one in Hermitage. And so now, you know, they're all obviously smaller, but you have employees on the north side of town, east side of town, and the south side of town that kind of hit up different offices uh, as is convenient for them. So this is essentially the same thing. Without having to go and lease a whole other office space, you could do a membership here, and uh, your employees could just stop by whenever, uh, whenever it's convenient for them. I would imagine they're choosing very specific restaurant locations. Companies are becoming more interested in this offering as they shift to longer-term remote work strategies, including hybrid approaches with employees working remotely for part of the week. Yep, I mean, we're seeing that, that trend for sure. Um, employees may not be going in five days. They may be going in three days or three and a half days or four days. Um, you know, every other day just totally depends on what, what these different companies are doing. So that's pretty cool to see. I like that one. All right, this, uh, this article is from Vox.com. Work is fun, fun is work, and restaurants are co-working spaces. The craze explained. So diving further into this restaurants becoming co-working spaces topic, not even high-end restaurants can escape the gig economy's clutches. Okay, cool. So think about that. I mean, most of these higher-end restaurants have a really cool, unique environment. And if they're higher-end, typically they're only open at night. So during the day... You can go work out of this really cool environment. I mean, I don't see why that wouldn't be popular. Of course, you've got to have somebody manage it. There's logistics and all that kind of stuff to deal with. But, I mean, to me, it seems like only upside. Crave has gotten into the co-working business. In April, the restaurant partnered with a startup called Spacious to transform its dining room into a weekday workspace. After all, in an age where everyone seems to have a side hustle, why shouldn't a restaurant uh, that's a great question. Why shouldn't they? Spacious bills itself as a cheaper, more flexible alternative to traditional co-working spaces like WeWork, which it's not hard to be cheaper than WeWork. Uh, based on my experience, their offering is really tough. Uh, tough to deal with sometimes. For $129 a month or $99 per month with a year-long membership, members have access to 15 locations in New York City. Most spacious locations are dinner-only restaurants, there you go, touching on the dinner-only side of it, that would otherwise sit empty during lunch hours. I mean, of course they would. All of them are outfitted with power strips, additional routers to ensure a fast Wi-Fi, and a bottomless coffee and tea bar. This is also a brilliant concept for these co-working spaces, right? Because one of the biggest issues that WeWork faced, uh, and is still facing today, is how capital-intensive it can be to build out space. Um, you know, they're signing these massive leases that whether they lease up, you know, their little individual offices or not, they're still having to fork over that money. They're having to pay for all of this build out. I mean, you know, a concept like this, I don't know how spacious is structured. I don't know if they're coming in and actually signing a lease or not. But I mean, look, the great, the best way to set this up is a profit share model, right? I mean, spacious comes in and pays for all of the updates that you would have to have to make it a co-working space. And but otherwise, there's no overhead other than going out of marketing to get the customers. So, I, I mean, I could see this concept doing incredibly well. I love this. 
because there's no overhead, right? The restaurant's already paying for the rent. Anything that comes in from this venture is just gravy on top of it. And, you know, these, these co-working spaces can win because you don't have to have so it's no, it's not so capital intensive. You don't have to spend so much money and go, you know, shop for the perfect space and take your time. You can go ahead and find these spaces that are already leased, which are probably already in ideal locations because they're phenomenal. You know, these are high end restaurants, which means they're doing well. And, you know, open up a little bottomless coffee bar. That's cool. As freelancers and other remote workers who don't want to pay for a WeWork membership, uh, spacious is more appealing. Spacious is a more appealing option than working from home or from a crowded coffee shop. The both of those of which can be very frustrating. By the way, I don't know if you if you own your company or if if you just enjoy working remotely. I can't work from home. I, I don't enjoy it. Uh, so sometimes I'll go to a coffee shop. Well, co- most coffee shops are great to work from unless they are so packed, it's loud, and it can be miserable to deal with. So, you know, I like I like this offering. This is this is very interesting. It's a different take on the gig economy. All right. Inside self-storage stuff raises one point eight million dollars to convert unused commercial space to self-storage. Now, this is an interesting take. Um, I, I like this because you think about how much commercial space actually does sit vacant. And typically they're in pretty decent areas. Right. So it would make a lot of sense uh, for for them to figure out a different way to monetize them. With locations in Brooklyn, New York and San Francisco, the company will use the money to expand its footprint. Goal is to surpass 100,000 square feet of storage in 2021. It looks like they just raised one point eight million dollars in seed funding. So they're based in New York. Uh they look for options near residents who have to travel long distances to find existing self-storage facilities. So, you know, there, there's a clear problem here with self-storage that I think that they're doing a good job at, at fighting. Self-storage is, it, it can be tough to get those deals approved, right? Because, you know, one, the, the best areas for you to be in are probably the most expensive because it's where all the multifamily developers want to be. You need to be where there's high density. And so, of course, you know, fighting for the right piece of dirt um, can be tough. And if you don't have the existing uh, zoning in place and you've got to go through rezoning, it can be difficult for people to get, uh, I mean, for developers to get rezonings approved for self-storage. You know, of course, there is the, the NIMBY attitude, the not in my backyard that, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, I don't want it. Uh, but also some people don't like driving by storage facilities, which, you know, back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I could understand. Now, most storage facilities are nicer than some of the buildings I drive by. Um, but, you know, people just always think, you know, I don't want to I don't want to live near a storage facility. But all in all, they're actually great neighbors. There's hardly any traffic going in and out. Um, there's no people living on site. So there's no noise. There's no you know parties. There's nothing going on. Uh, which is great. I mean, most people go in there, they put stuff in storage, and they don't touch it for years. So it looks like the CEO, Lau, believes the concept will be particularly attractive to millennials who tend to live more transient lifestyles and visit their storage site on a more frequent basis. Okay, that's interesting. So literally the opposite of what I just said. 
Uh, the storage facility becomes an extension of their home. It's about much more than having a place to leave your stuff. It becomes a useful extension of your life. I can see, actually, I mean, that makes sense. Look, as you're living into smaller or moving into smaller and smaller apartment units, you're going to have to use storage more often. Now, I, you know, I just, if I'm moving into something smaller, I tend to just sell a bunch of stuff or throw a bunch of stuff away. There's no way I'm putting anything into storage because uh, I don't want to deal with that. But, you know, if you are, you know, if you're living in New York City or you're living in downtown Nashville, I could see how, you know, you want to live in 400 square feet and, you know, you've got a bunch of different guitars and you only have space for one. Maybe you go to your storage unit every, you know, every other week or whatever and switch out guitars. I mean, I, you know, to me, that that makes sense, kind of what they're saying there. To that end, stuff focuses on interior design that is warm and inviting for customers. So that's a very different approach from your traditional uh, self-storage facility where uh, it's very cold and industrial. Interesting. Pricing is about the same as for traditional self-storage because the company doesn't have to buy the buildings or sign a traditional lease. Uh, It doesn't really say what kind of model that they're using. But again, I mean, to me, this would make sense. The same thing as the last, uh, you know, restaurant article makes sense to come in and do a profit share. Right. I mean, the space is sitting there vacant anyway. You're gonna have to keep paying for it no matter what. You might as well let this group come in and see if they can monetize and make some money off it. All right. Now let's get into prop tech. Prop tech is a it's a very interesting sector. It's one of the you know most rapidly growing and expanding sectors of commercial real estate because of the way that prop tech can uh, influence and change uh, how we look at property, but also the bottom line. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that that, that is all that matters. You know, we have these conversations with our prop tech guys all the time. It's like, that's cool. We want to do it. We would love to do it. But how does it make financial sense? We've got to figure that out first, because if I can't get a good return on it, I can't do it. This is pretty interesting. So uh, this is a uh, this is from MIT, um, from the actual MIT University, bringing construction projects to the digital world. So there's a startup called Open Space that is using 360 cameras uh, and computer vision to create comprehensive digital replicas of construction sites. So think about that. You've got, you know, instead of having to go through with a camera every couple of weeks and just take a bunch of photos and try to document it, you could actually map out these projects, build these renderings, do 3D tours. So if you've got investors that are, you know, in, in Alaska um, and you're doing a project in Florida, they can still take 3D tours and view the progress. You know, it's great to be able to get photos, and it's great to do videos, and it's great to have drone footage. But at the end of the day, how much of a story does that really tell you? I mean, not, you know, not, not enough, right? You don't know that from a drone video that, you know, the light fixtures haven't been installed. You can't see stuff like that. So this is a pretty great idea. We've started using a lot of 3D tours. We do a 3D tour on every single property that we have because it opens up the the you know buyer and leasing pool to not just somebody that can actually go tour it uh, in person but also people who are looking you know from across the world so uh, you know this this makes a lot of sense to me let's see in construction general contractors and real estate developers often need someone to be physically present on a job site to verify work is done correctly and on time so this will be huge for the groups that are, you know, based in Chicago and developing in Nashville. 
Well, that principal may not be able to fly to Nashville every week to check on progress. They, you know, typically have a representative that's doing that. But, you know, think about how much money you could save if you only have to fly down to Nashville once a month and you can watch everything else in these 3D tours the rest of the time. It'll be pretty interesting to see how that would work, especially with like VR headsets. I mean, you could actually probably walk through the space while you're from Chicago, you know, while you're still in Chicago. Let's see. They might also rely on a photographer or smartphone images to document a project's progress, which, you know, they just don't, they don't look good. They don't look professional. Um, and they, they often don't capture everything. So their um, 360 cameras create a comprehensive time-stamped digital replica of the construction site. That's cool. So, like, you know, just like you can do in Google Street View, where you can go back to, you know, 2017 or 2014, whenever, you know, see the different iterations of when it was shot. You do the same with the, with the construction project. See where it was 30 days in. See where it was 90 days in. Let's see. The Open Space Vision Engine maps the photos to work plans automatically. Cool. Creating a Google, oh, look at that. Creating a Google Street View-like experience for people to remotely tour work sites at different times as if they were physically present. So I wonder how they're doing this. The solution is helping workers in the construction industry improve accountability, which is much, much needed in, in construction. Uh, minimize travel, like I said, you, you fly down there you know, fewer times, uh, reduce risks and more. Love it. Okay, so how are they doing this? It looks like, oh, oh cool. Okay, so their, uh, their 360 cameras are attached to slightly modified hard hats. The cameras take pictures every half second and use artificial intelligence techniques to identify the camera's precise location, even indoors. That's cool. So it's not even an inconvenience to your team. You just have one guy walk around on site wearing this modified hard hat taking pictures. Uh, wow, that's pretty cool. Once a few tours of the job site have been uploaded, uploaded to OpenSpace's platform, it can map pictures onto site plans within 15 minutes. That's, that's remarkable. You think about how much data that is, and it can do it that quickly. Wow. So, of course, I mean, that's going to save time. That's going to save money. It's pretty interesting to see. You know, these, like I was saying, when we first started talking about prop tech, I mean, it's, a, it's remarkable to see how this is actually impacting the, the commercial real estate sector. It's, it, CRE has been stuck in the 80s for years. I mean, obviously, since, since the 80s. You know, it's, it, it, when I first got started, I mean, keeping handwritten notes uh, in a journal and cold calling was about all you did. That was, that was commercial real estate. So good to, good to see that, you know, things like this are changing. Um, I mean, I, I would imagine a, a product like this. I mean, you look at what Matterport has done in the last few years. I mean, Matterport is – it started out in residential. We use it for all of our commercial stuff. But it shoots 3D tours uh, of commercial spaces, and, you know, I figured out how to do it with my iPhone. Uh, I mean, you buy a camera for 300 bucks, and now I can go do 3D tours in about 10 minutes for a space on my iPhone. Um, you know, what kind of next-level marketing that allows me to provide. So uh, this, is, uh, this is their website. This goes a little further into it. Your job site fully captured. Just tap record and go. I mean, I, I think this is really cool. Um, 
you know, look at that. So here's, here's a demo of them going through the site. Basically, it has all these little blue nodes that you could just jump to um, and then, you know, use your finger to kind of move around. You look up, you can look down. Uh, and it's pretty simple. This guy's just walking around with a, with a camera on his helmet. Cool. So all you have to do is have somebody walk around all day. Love it. Okay, cool. Well, for this next segment, I'm going to bring Andy in to talk a little bit about reading REITs. Andy, what's going on, man? Hey, Tyler. Nice to see you. Yeah, let's talk about REITs. I know we've been bringing REITs on for the past couple of shows now because we really think that REITs is because the commercial real estate market often takes so long to update in terms of pricing, right? You know, even after the pandemic, and it's been a whole year now, we've Believe it or not, we've survived a whole year since coronavirus first started shutting everything down. So congratulations, everybody. Uh, We survived a year. But even after a full year, some of the properties that were under distress a year ago are just now starting to hit the market in terms of their loans being defaulting or they're trying to sell because of some pressures or issues. So it takes a long time for us to get up-to-date pricing for a lot of real estate buildings, a lot of the sectors of the real estate market. So that's why it's often good to look at products like REITs, right? Because they give you a more up-to-date sort of understanding of where the market is at. So that's why we've been trying to cover it. So what we've got here today to look at is kind of the overall this is from nareit.com, which is just NorthAmericanReits.com, I believe. And then it shows you kind of a very broad perspective of how the different sectors have been performing. So you can see on the left here all of the different types of sectors of the real estate REIT market that they're tracking, whether or not that's retail or residential, industrial or office. And then over on, on the right along the top, you have the return levels. And so obviously, you know, when you're wanting to get started investing in real estate, right, REITs are often a great way for you to just get some exposure to the market to get started, right? Because they're essentially traded like stocks. You can just go in, you can buy it on your favorite stock trading app, you know, and it's very, very easy. You can technically own part of a company that owns real estate within 10 minutes, you know, if you're set up already. And like Andy was saying earlier, I mean, that's why tracking REITs makes so much sense because it's it's since they are traded similar to stocks, you're getting that, you know, minute, minute by minute, second by second pricing. Whereas in commercial real estate, you know, last year, I said this, uh, you know, last week's episode or the, the week before, you know, when we had that three, you know, bear, uh, three day bear run where like Wednesday was record stock lows, Thursday record stock lows, Friday record stock lows. I didn't have anybody, you know, sending alerts to my phone saying, hey, your building just lost 10 percent. Hey, your building just lost 15 percent. Like it's just it doesn't happen. It's a more liquid asset. So it's it's great to track REITs because you can see what how investors feel about them in real time. Exactly. And as we look here, so when you look into REITs, then you're going to be thinking, okay, what do I want to be investing in? What are going to be the good sectors going into the future? So typically how a lot of people do that is look at the past and uh, to try to gauge how people might perceive the future of real estate. And especially after the coronavirus crash, 
you know, a lot of REITs lost a lot of value, especially the sectors that people had been thinking were going to be super destroyed, right? People were saying office is dead, shopping is dead, right? So hotels are dead, right? No, no one can go travel, go to hotels. So what's funny is if you look at the one year return for office, for retail, and for hospitality, right? Lodging resorts, you see the office one year return 36%, right? Pretty high. Retail one year return 76%. I mean, if you're gaining 76% year over year, you're pretty happy. And then look at lodging and resorts 152%, right? So that's compared to the bottom of the market last year. So if you bought in March of last year to now, especially in the hotels where you gained 150%, you're sitting here today pretty happy. But the real story of how poorly those sectors have done over the long run is, is when you look at the three and the five-year returns, right? If you look at the three-year return for retail and the five-year return for retail, over the last five years, actually retail centers are down 3.5% compared to five years ago, which is awful. I mean, you expect stocks on average, you know, real estate on average going up somewhere between three to 5% every single year. And it's down minus 3% compared to five years ago, especially regional malls down 8.69% compared to five years ago. That's awful, right? These sectors are doing very poorly actually over a five-year time horizon. And that's how we're, that's when we're seeing, okay, when we talk about what is the future of office going to be, let's look at the future of office. The five-year return for office REITs is 3.42%. That's abysmal. I mean, even though it's a positive return, you're losing money to inflation. If you had invested $100 into office REITs five years ago, and it's only worth $103 now, You've lost money due to inflation. You've lost money. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about figuring out how do office properties reposition, is it going to be with Google, you know, investing $7 billion into the market, or is it going to be Salesforce abandoning its, abandoning its giant tower, right? When we talk about shopping, it was like, what are, what, ha what are happening to the malls? Are malls dying, but are convenience stores, local, regional, retail centers going up, you know, when we're looking at hospitality and resorts, right? Up 150% since last year, but gosh, how, how far that thing must have fallen last year during the height of Corona, because over three years, hospitality is only up half a percentage point, you know? So that's why we're trying to focus in on helping you guys explore what is going on with the market, what is going on with the future, because this is how you can take advantage of these opportunities and see if we can go into these industries that are hurting as, and it's very obvious that they've been hurting over the last three to five years, you know, what can we do and how can we position ourselves as real estate investors, real estate developers to take advantage of things that are underpriced right now.
and and that's something to understand too in real estate development you the there's a common saying is that you make your money when you buy right you make your money when you buy and what that means is really at the end of the day no matter how many problems you have with your real estate portfolio because whenever you make an investment there's always going to be things that you don't foresee you know there's going to be extra repairs you're going to try to try to build a building and it's going to be behind schedule but if you buy it for the right price it doesn't matter you'll be okay but and it doesn't matter how well you perform you can run a project perfectly but if you bought it for too much money you're not going to make money and so actually retail and office and compared to something like industrial, which over the last five years is the best performing sector up 20% over the past five years, or infrastructure up 18%, data centers up 15%, right? Single family homes, we talked about single family homes for up for rent, up 16%. So yes, these ones, these sectors have been doing well, have been doing really, have had a lot of money go into them over the last five years. But that might also mean they're expensive. There may not be as many opportunities there for creative developers to get in and really take advantage of market pricing that has not changed for the last five years. And, and that's what I'm trying to uh, hammer in here. If retail, average retail properties are down 3% compared to five years, years ago, roughly we can say, okay, Overall, the retail market, the pricing and valuations haven't changed for five years compared to industrial properties, which is valuations have gone up 20% over the last five years. So the people who can figure out how to take advantage of what are lower prices compared to things like industrial, compared to things like single-family homes for rent or data centers, are going to be posed, poised to make a lot more money and succeed into the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's it's fun to watch REITs just, be, I mean, for that exact reason. You know, it's I'm I'm not a big fan of single family homes, but you look at you know 15 percent year over year. I'm sorry, 65 percent in the last year, 15 percent in the last what three years. I, I mean, it's tough to argue with those numbers, right? So, uh, you know, there's been quite a bit of investment going into single family homes and and some of these other aspects, but. You know, when you see people selling out of one asset class, there's an opportunity there, right? You just got to figure out what that opportunity is. It may not be obvious, but you look at shopping malls. Like, of course, shopping malls for the longest time got to an incredibly low value per square foot, which meant, hey, there's an opportunity there, right? And so groups started buying them up and redeveloping them into mixed-use lifestyle centers with, you know, apartments above and hotels and office space. And then you had the retail and the food courts and and of course, you, you're able to create this incredibly cool, highly desirable, basically town center, right? So you just got to get a little creative with it. And I think, uh, I think Andy's right that, you know, look, I mean, obviously retail, you know, uh, residential going up like it has means it's probably expensive to get into that market. They're probably, you know, the sellers are probably, developers are getting top dollar for the product they're adding to the inventory list. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're, if you're looking at retail, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely opportunity there. So, uh, I think, I think keep an eye on that one. And Andy this week, what do we, uh, what do we have for the wild card? So Tyler earlier 
talked about how we're going to be breaching on the future of construction, right? And last last week we talked about modular construction. And if you guys haven't seen, we did a deep dive into modular construction, made a whole podcast, essentially live stream episode of modular construction. So you can find that on the YouTube channel as well. But this week we're going to be talking about 3D construction, which literally means we are 3D printing homes. Now you guys may have heard about 3D printing, right? Where you can, you have this little machine and you put in a design and it comes out and you get a little object, right? They're literally doing that with entire houses now. And this type of construction is going to revolutionize how we're building because once these things reach critical mass and critical scale, we talked about last week about how developing and building buildings with modular construction can save you all this time, save you all this money, save you all this energy. When you look at some of the numbers of how much they can build these projects for, you're going to be blown away. So here's a couple of the companies building 3D print uh, homes right now. And as we have some background here, it says throughout history, the construction industry has largely remained unchanged with most structures still requiring workers to add layers of bricks or other building materials atop each other. However, the conventional approach is becoming outdated in the modern age as it heavily relies on individual skill, produces large amounts of waste and noise and yields low productivity. 3D printing promises to build houses faster, cheaper, and more accurately. And so let's look at what how these companies actually work. If you see here on this picture, you know, you can start to see, and it will go through a couple more examples for you as well. You can open up a wide range of design, just like with we were talking about with modular construction. You could open up a newer, newer set of designs. You can have things like curved walls super easily because remember, when we're building a normal house, right, we're stuck with the materials that we have to use to build it which is a four by eight piece of plywood, right? And last I checked, those things were rectangle and pretty flat. So I don't see any curves in there. At least you wouldn't want to be putting up plywood in your house that has any curves in it, right? So with 3D printing technology, you can actually be building buildings that have all sorts of weird curves and shapes. And so we can, we can show you a couple here, like look at this one out of Russia that they put up actually in 24 hours. So this entire structure was constructed in 24 hours and it's fully insulated and it's a circle or with circle with a weird little nub sticking out of it, right? That's something that you would never be able to do using regular construction. I mean, try, try to imagine how hard it would be to make a perfectly round circle house out of rectangle sheets of plywood. If you can do it, you know, you, you, you're probably the number one carpenter in the entire world, right? So it not only allows us to build things faster and cheaper, but also allows us to make cool shapes like this. And here's one icon. And I want to go over icon. This is a U.S. company. There's a couple U.S. companies I want to feature here. And icon has actually is a 3D printing company. So essentially, they have a big machine that essentially just if you see here at the bottom, this white part, there's a they have a proprietary mix of concrete material that essentially is just squeezed out like paste. And it's essentially just like squeezing out a layer of toothpaste from a big machine 
round and round and round as it's building up. So these are actually the first 3D printed houses in the United States of America for sale. And they use those at the, as the base, as a very cheap base. They put that up very quickly. They can put those up in 24, 48 hours. And then they just build a structure on top of that. So you're saving a lot of time, money, and energy to build that there. You see here, this is the base of it. And then they just did a regular stick frame construction on top of that using those zip R sheathing panels. So these are actually for sale right now in Austin. So you can buy uh, these, these houses already. And I wanted to show you, so these are their affordable ones that they initially unveiled about three years ago at South by Southwest. Look how much this costs. And it looks pretty, right? You've got a metal roof here that they put on or some sort of wooden frame roof with maybe metal on top. And then you've got your rooms and you've got your doors and everything. Look how much it costs them to build that. 3D printed house for $4,000 in less than 24 hours. That is crazy. That's absolutely crazy. I mean, I, <laughs> you, can buy, you can build a house for less than it costs you to buy a car, right? With this sort of technology. That is going to completely change the way people do things. And you get this cool, you know, curved factor. And the thing about 3D printing is that when you look at a normal construction for a home, right? There's several layers. There's the foundation, then you put up the essentially structure if you're doing a stick frame, right, you have the frame, then you have the cladding. What a cladding is, is essentially the, if you have vinyl or hardy board plank or bricks, that's what goes around and wraps the house outside of the frame. And then you have the roof system, right? And some of these systems, you know, they're the foundation and the insulation and the framing and the cladding, and sometimes even the roof system all in one. So it, that's not only are we saving a lot of time and money on materials, but also we're just consolidating all these different construction, typical construction factors and con typical construction steps into one step. Uh, so they built this house in 4,000 bucks for 4,000 bucks, takes them 12 to 24 hours. And they built a bunch of homes, for example, um, in El Salvador and they were building homes for families in Mexico. So that's the type of abilities we can unlock with 3D construction like this, is that when we are able to buy these things cheaply, you know, we can provide a lot of new opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get into the real estate market, right? They, this company specifically, Icon, created three or four homes for a homelessness prevention village in Austin, Texas, right? These are the types of things that we can be doing when you when you have a product like this that can build a house for 4,000 bucks, right? And then I wanna show you guys a couple of other pictures of these other houses. Look at this one. I mean, it looks like an AT-AT. You have different little legs of, of their concrete material going up and down inside and out, right? And, uh, that, that's a company in France that they're going to have a network of 50 printers by 2025 building buildings like that. Look at this one out of China, right? Uh, it's like a, essentially a donut. You, you can have all these crazy shapes. And I want to show you this other one here uh, called Wasp. 
we'll go back to Mighty Buildings in a section. Look at this one. So this one is trying to use the idea of a wasp nest to make an, a completely circular dome construction. And you see here this wa wasp crane. This is how this thing is getting built. It's literally the machine is doing whatever it does and using its locally sourced materials to build a circular round building like this. And I wanted to cover this specifically because this is such a unique design they can set up, you know, homes that are in this grid system. And they actually, I believe, let me see, it was like using natural clay. Um, I can find the, the paragraph where they said that. Yeah. So literally they're using a zero kilometer natural material, a zero waste building. They're literally using the soil on the ground for this one. So most of these buildings, 3D printed buildings are used some sort of concrete mix that has some proprietary technology that allows it to flow and then harden. This one, you can literally build it out of dirt. And that's making it super cheap, obviously. Well, I mean, there is nothing cheaper in the world to use out of building materials than dirt. So a company like this is able to use dirt, literally to 3D build buildings. And so the, uh, the last group I want to cover here is Mighty Buildings, which is another American company. So Icon and Mighty Buildings being the two American companies that are really at the forefront of 3D construction in the United States. So they uh, use 3D printing, robotics, and automation and combine that with modular construction to create their facilities. And, you know, these things obviously are a lot nicer than some of the other ones that we've seen, right? And you know, they got this kind of California, West Coast, you know, mid-century modern vibe to them. But a unit like this, and this is fully furnished with all your plumbing and electrical and your cabinets and all that kind of stuff. A unit like this that you see here is only going to run you $155,000. So for a 350 square foot property, right, uh, or $159,000 if you just if you're willing to pay a little bit more, you can double the size of your house, right? Um, this is not that expensive. And I know we were looking at $4,000 before, right, as being, oh, gosh, you know, that's super cheap. But when we're looking at something like, you know, 865 square feet for uh, $185,000, you know, that's only about 200 bucks a foot, which is expensive compared to the other stuff that we're looking at. But if we're creating these, these are luxury properties here. If we're creating these luxury properties outfitted with all the highest end technology and insulation and modular components, and it includes all of your, you know, cabinets and your plumbing and all your bathroom already included, being able to get into one of those for 200 bucks a foot is a pretty good price. So that is the power here of 3D construction. You can take it as low as literally using dirt to build your homes, right, to kind of a middle middle level uh, of using different forms of concrete. And then you have a top level of combining it with different modular components and putting them together. But the point is to say that all these different forms of construction in 3D construction and talking about modular construction from last week, 
these things are coming. It's going to be changing the way the industry does business. Obviously, it's not going to be widespread tomorrow. But I want you all, and that's why y'all are tuned into Tyler's channel here, to be on top of all of the latest trends and all of the cool things that are happening in the real estate, in the construction industry. And that's why uh, we're here to talk to you guys. That is really cool. Let me figure out how I can get out of picture in a picture. There we go. Uh, yeah, that's really cool, man. I, I love uh, the opportunity there with 3D printing. I mean, it, it makes so much sense when you think about it. You're, the ability that we have uh, that we have with 3D printers is pretty remarkable. I mean, you've got they're printing organs, right? Like they're literally building organs um, out of 3D printers. So of course, you know, why not do it with homes? I was thinking while you were talking how how fascinating it would be to watch a job site where they come in and do all of the site work and then just have this crane move like lot to lot that just prints houses i mean it'd be really interesting to see see that going down um yeah i mean i love that it's it's the future right you can do it much more affordably it's similar to, to modular construction where they're building in factories it's i was talking about this earlier with prop tech it's fascinating to see all of these different groups coming in and really advancing commercial real estate construction and development. It'll make a massive difference. It's going to help out consumers pretty significantly. And also it's going to be environmentally friendly. If you're building homes out of dirt, that's the most renewable resource that you possibly could have in, in construction, right? Um, so that's, uh, that's pretty cool to see. Well, Andy, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for diving into that for our wild card. Thank you to everybody that tuned in this week. Don't forget to join us live Mondays at 5.30 p.m. to ask your questions on commercial real estate, prop tech, REITs, whatever topics we're covering, whatever topics you want us to cover. Feel free to jump in the live chat and let us know, and, and let's open up the conversation. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe uh, so that you can always get notified of our upcoming shows. And if you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. Appreciate you guys stopping by, and we will see you next week.